Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Russell. Great to be here with you this morning. Please keep your Bibles open there at Matthew chapter 6 as we come to this uh, last sermon in our series on uh, looking at money. And we're going to start with the hard word first. Jesus says, do not worry. Yet every second, as we think about money, we do worry. As we cast our mind to uh, the state of the economy and whether we understand it and what direction it's going in or that we look at it and go, I don't understand that. We look at the stock exchange, we think about our jobs and we think about job security or perhaps people we know who don't have jobs, we think about unemployment, we think about those big numbers of unemployment in our community but then in other communities around about the world. We wonder about whether we are on the right approach to real estate. We look at our bank account, we look at the bills that build up and when and how we're going to pay them. We think about financial crime and fraud. As we think about money, we do worry. But this sermon series, I've been saying all along that we're to be getting God's perspective on money and when we get God's perspective on money, we will have freedom. Freedom from worry, freedom from stress, freedom from anxiety, freedom from guilt and a freedom that overflows into our lives and enables us to have joy and generosity and contentment. This morning we're coming to our fourth financial strategy that is opposed to God. We've looked at each one of those uh, across the last couple of weeks and seen that there's a little bit of each one of them in all of us and some of us sit in more in one financial strategy than the other that is opposed to God but today we're going to look at financial anxiety. For those of us who are financially anxious, where this is our financial strategy, money or the lack of it keeps us awake at night. We're never quite sure that we will have enough. We worry about money, we think about money, it's something that makes our blood pressure go up a little bit. It has this kind of negative, shadowy feeling over our lives all the time. Perhaps for you, you need to check your bank account before you can go to the shop counter because you're never quite sure whether you're going to have enough money or enough in that account to pay what you're going to pay for. Perhaps it's started to come over your life in such a way that you hold back in generosity because you're worried if you might have enough to meet your own expenses. If we were to ask, is money everything? We're quick to say no, but it feels like money is everything and I wish it wasn't. Financial anxiety is all around us and no matter how much money we might have for any of us in the room, all of us at one stage or another will feel anxious about money. We will worry. And Jesus very clearly says to us, 
in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, do not worry. This is more than advice. He's not telling this as a suggestion, as a good idea. It's a command. Do not worry. It's a command, but it's also a promise. Because here in the wider context, he gives us good reason why we need not worry about money, about stuff, about what we might have, about what we need. You see there in verse 19, the context in which Jesus gives this command to not worry, he's giving us God's perspective so that we might store up treasure in heaven. Not use wealth now to serve ourselves, rather, as followers of Jesus, as people who know eternity with God, we will invest in the eternal things of God. You see there in verse 22, as Jesus is talking about the eye as the lamp of the body, if your eyes are good, if your eyes are healthy, if your eyes have the right perspective... He's talking here about disciples having an eternal perspective, about disciples seeing things from God's perspective. This whole series that we're doing on money is about getting God's perspective, about getting the right perspective on money and ourselves and eternity, getting a healthy perspective. So some of the things that we've seen is because all good things and gifts come from God as a gift, we enjoy them with thanksgiving. That was what we saw in the first week. The second week, though, we saw that we need to keep steering away from greed with repentance. Last Sunday, Tim reflected on this a little bit at the start of the service. With what God has entrusted to us, we'll be shrewdly generous, investing in eternity, not using money to serve ourselves, but to serve God and His purposes. And so the bottom line really is this, you and I cannot serve both God and money. If our allegiance is with King Jesus, if we're following after him, if we know God, our good heavenly father, we will know this, you cannot, I cannot serve both God and money. And so we will be people who master money before it masters us. We will be stewards, not servants of money. And Jesus is saying, if we get these things right, we will be free. Free from worry. I came across an article this week that gave seven or nine, I can't remember which number it was, Seven, let's go with seven. Seven scientific reasons why we need not worry. All just little bits of tips and advice and instructions and common sense. But here in the New Testament, here from Jesus' lips, there is a bigger reason that is beyond science or psychology of why it is possible to not worry. 
Why? Because of who God is. Not something in my mind, not a practice or a habit that I can put into my life, but because of who God is. Sovereign and generous, sovereign, He is able to provide. He is able to do anything in this world and He is generous, He loves to provide. This is how Jesus expands out the command not to worry with this promise. A promise of who God is, our loving Heavenly Father, who provides the food for the birds. Did anyone brave the minus one degree temperature this morning to get up and go for a walk or a bike ride? You go outside? There were birds out in the midst of that, having their breakfast. Nobody got up to feed them. Nobody thought, I've got to get up and prepare some food for the, all these birds that are out there this morning. Are you not more valuable than the birds, Jesus says? God clothes the grass, dressed in more splendour than Solomon, King Solomon, uh, rich and wealthy in the Old Testament. I know our grass is not growing very much at the moment, but grass, we, we plough through it with our lawnmowers. Grass is cow food. If, if God clothes the grass, Jesus says, will he not more clothe you? You see, we need not worry. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 7, which of you if your son or even your daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, at that point saying earthly and normal humans, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our loving Father is 100% able and 100% willing to provide us with everything that we need in life. Now sometimes we might not get what we think we need at that time. Sometimes we might look at our situation and it might seem so unlikely that we are going to get through this or that God could possibly provide. It might seem absolutely impossible. But remember, God, well, He can multiply money as easily as He can multiply loaves and fish as Jesus fed the great crowd. In those times, it we will work within the, the, the means and the wisdom and the ability that God has given us. It's, it's not that we are like the birds and the grass and we just <laughs> sit on the ground and grow. Sometimes we might need to work harder or wiser in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Perhaps at times 
relying more than usual on the generosity round of people round about us that God has placed us in relationship with. There are all ways in which God is providing for us. And certainly what God is always doing is changing our heart to trust in Him more and more, regardless of how much we have. One of the things that I've noticed uh, over the years is seeing in older believers, our older brothers and sisters who have been uh, following after Jesus then longer than us, that quite often we see that they are more content with what they have than what I am. And all I can put this down to is not perhaps being a, a, an older, more frugal gen, generation or, or anything like that, but I, I think it's because, well, God has been working in their lives longer <laughs> to, 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 to remind them and, 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 and teach the older, more mature believers amongst them that he, that he is a God who feeds the birds, a God who clothes the grass, a God who cares for us, a heavenly loving Father who is 100% able and 100% willing. Now for those of us who are under 90 though, let's not use this as an excuse to say, well God's still got to do a little bit more in my heart now, contentment's coming in another 50 years and let's not use it as an excuse, let's use it as a test of our faith. Am I content? Am I confident in God providing for me? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Just as Jesus strongly says you cannot serve both God and money, do not worry. God says never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And as we keep getting God's eternal perspective, we might have a sense of what real riches are. Uh, Nicholas Ridley I was one of the martyrs at the time of the Reformation who was killed, burned at the stake because he was determined to keep preaching the truths of the Bible into a world and even a church that was to reject it. And in the lead up to the day where he was to be burned, this is his perspective on eternal riches. He said to the people round about them, though my breakfast will be somewhat sharp, my supper will be more pleasant and sweet, for we shall very soon be in heaven. He had God's external perspective on true riches, which also come to us in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the truths and perspective that gripped Ridley's heart, even amidst the fear of going to a stake where he would be burned. Though my breakfast will be somewhat sharp, my supper will be more pleasant and sweet, for we shall very soon be in heaven. If you here this morning are a child of God, if God is your loving Heavenly Father, if you are a follower of Jesus, all of this is true for you. So do not worry. We need not worry. But you see, this is not true for those who don't know God. An article in the Huffington Post that talks about seven scientific ways by which you can avoid worry. That cannot be true for those who don't know God. The high-flying, successful executive, no matter how much money or power or success or upward mobility he might have in the world, these truths, this promise, this command that Jesus talks about is not true for the battling self-funded retiree who does not know a heavenly father in heaven what Jesus says do not worry it is not true for the recent graduate who can't find a job without knowing a heavenly father who provides for the birds of the air and the grass of the field Jesus cannot say do not worry for the lady living on the streets or the single parent family that are relying on Centrelink without a knowledge of a loving God who is 100% able and 100% willing. Jesus' command, do not worry, is empty. You see, if you don't know a sovereign and generous God. There is no comfort in Jesus' words here. Yet this is who God is. A generous, loving Father. And knowing that we have this loving, heavenly Father who's perfectly able and perfectly willing to provide, we need not worry he will give us everything that we need and more. Now in wrapping up this series today, 
I want to take us to Paul's example, and particularly in the letter of Philippians, if you'd like to start turning there in the New Testament. Collected up there with all the shun letters, not the big words that end in shun uh, letters, but Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Paul is a great example for us when it comes to uh, thinking about money and stuff and our place in the world. And today we want to bring it to a close in how we might respond to these financial strategies that are opposed to God. When we looked at financial asceticism and trying to get away from money, we saw, no, it's a good gift from God and we enjoy it with thanks. We've become aware of financial atheism and how in the absence of God, greed will grip our hearts and our response to that financial strategy is to repent. In the midst of our financial apathy, money coming in and money going out, we'll be strategic in thinking about shrewd generosity. We see all this in the Apostle Paul and today as we're thinking about financial anxiety, the big word of our response is contentment. Paul stands out at this. He lived it out. And we can have a wrong idea about Paul having written a large part of the New Testament that he was some kind of super-Christian. Or another view we might have is that, well, he was just a deluded religious zealot. He didn't really look at the circumstances that were round about him. No, Paul was a realist. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was once had thrown stones thrown at him to try and kill him. He was shipwrecked. Uh, he, was, he says he was naked, he says he was hungry. We've got a record here of him being, asking someone to bring him a coat. He was cold. He knows what it was to be in need. Yet he models for us this steady, ongoing enjoyment of God's gifts with thanks, a constant turning away from greed, a shrewd generosity and a steady contentment because he had healthy eyes, because he had a right perspective, an eternal perspective and a clear and certain understanding of a sovereign and generous God. Have you found Philippians chapter 4, verse 4? Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul's writing from prison. And he says to the Christians that he's writing to rejoice. Why? How? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, your generous, loving, heavenly Father. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't have anxiety, but pray and know God's peace. And verse 8, finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. A content life is focused on what is good. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He's a good model for us to follow. And the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Paul certainly knew what it was to have a sharp breakfast. There would have been days in his life where he might not have, where he 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 would have not, had no confidence that he was going to make it to lunchtime. That he would wake up the next day. But he says, "I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances." Verse twelve: I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He is not deluded. He is not a super-Christian. The secret of contentment is not found in an article which talks about seven scientific ways to find contentment in this world. It's through knowing God. And he is content. How's your contentment? Are you content? In your financial strategy, are you content? Are you content with what you have? Are you content with your savings? Not because of what you have stored away over the years and a a safe nest egg, but because you know heavenly riches are more secure. Are you content in the hours that you give to your work each week as the means by which God provides? Or are you caught up in seeking more from work than the purpose for which it has been given? Are you content in the conversations that your family has about money together? Are you content in what you contribute to your immediate family, your wider family? Are you content with what you contribute to charity and to your church? How's your contentment? Can you say with Paul that you are content in any and every situation? Do you know the truth and the command of Jesus? Do not worry. Rich people and poor people 
will be anxious about money. Every single one of us at some stage or another in our life will be gripped by worry about money. More money will not fix that. Psychologist Dorothy Rowe, who was author of the book, The Real Meaning of Money, she says, even if we achieve what the world is pleased to acknowledge as success, we discover that the seizing of it fails to satisfy the hunger of spiritual expectation. In the midst of financial anxiety, what the world needs, what you need, what I need is not more money, but the gospel. If we're going to solve financial anxiety in our life, in the life of the person next to us, in the lives of our family, in the life of our church, in the life of the community about us, in the world, if we're going to solve the problem of financial anxiety, we don't need more economists, we don't need more bankers, we don't need financial planners, but ordinary men and women who are living radically content lives because they know Jesus. This radical contentment will show up in our ability to generously care for others. In the year that I left engineering and started training for ministry, it was one year where I needed to get some help in filling out my tax return. As Naomi and I went off to the tax accountant, tax accountant at that stage, uh, being fairly young and, 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 and uh, married and not yet having any kids, uh, this was the response of the tax accountant. You cannot give away this much money. This does not make sense. That, is a rad- that came out of a radical contentment. Let me tell you about another couple, a retired couple that I used to be at church with, who I took along to a school scripture support raising event. I was on a table of 10 people where everybody else on the table were in ministry training. People who had left careers, living on not a whole heap of money and it came time in the event where they were passing out the cards and you had to say how much money you were going to give to support school scripture in New South Wales. And we're kind of all looking at each other going, ah, this is a hard, uncomfortable bit. And the only other people at the table were a retired couple. Not particularly well off. Uh, The guy, he was a, a retired accountant And here, he and his wife were looking at this response card uh, next to me, trying to work out whether they're going to tick the $20 a month box of contribution or the $30 a month box contribution or write something smaller in the other. And this retired accountant, he was struggling with, with what to put there. And his wife who is radically content, she says, 
Oh, come on, we can do it. Tick the 40. That is radical contentment. Another couple that I know, when they became empty nesters, more so than they had previously in their life, made their home available to other people. People who were travelling through town and who had nowhere to stay. Sometimes people who were even homeless. People who just were without a place to stay for a couple of weeks. Uh, one time that I caught up with them, they had provided a home for somebody that they hadn't met who was travelling into their town to visit his female partner, wife, who was in jail and bringing along their two-year-old at the same time. They hadn't met this guy before, but had heard that he needed a bed to stay and they invited him in to stay in the house. And and the two-year-old slept in the cot where their own grandkids would normally sleep. And when they told me about this, I said to them, weren't weren't you you worried? (laughs) Weren't you worried about about your things and your stuff? And this radically content couple said, who'd be worried about stuff? Are you worried about stuff? Anxious about money? Well, Jesus says this to you and I. Do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body. Do not worry about what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So do not worry but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. Do you believe it? 